Welcome to Dense in the Darkness, the monthly podcast of the Northeast Collaborative. We're a new church network that empowers pastors to lead and launch healthy churches in Northeast America. I'm your host, Tim Madeira from WRGN Radio. I'm here with NEC's Executive Director, Dan Nichols. And this month, we have Professor Nancy Piercy with us. Dan, why don't you tell us why you wanted to invite Nancy onto the podcast today? Absolutely. So back when uh, I was a young man, way (laughs) back in the dark ages of my 2005 high school days, I started to read Professor Piercy's book, Total Truth, and it absolutely blew me away, especially her emphasis on the sacred-secular split, which was Honestly, it was revolutionary for me at that time. And so fast forward to 2018, I got the privilege of serving on Nancy's book launch team for Love Thy Body. And I honestly think it's one of the most important books spiritual leaders and pastors need to read today. It's phenomenal. And it's just a huge honor to have Nancy join us for Dents in the Darkness. Mm, Well, I'm excited because I have also read Love Thy Body and It's a phenomenal book, highly recommended. The information on that, by the way, will be available in the show notes. Professor Piercy, can you introduce yourself to everyone? Kind of give us an overview of your personal story and your family. Oh, thank you. Yes, I always love to tell my personal story because my my own conversion was so instrumental in who I am today and all my writing. I was raised in a Lutheran home. I say Lutheran instead of Christian, <laughs> very intentionally there, because my uh, my family were Scandinavian. My dad was Swedish, my mom's Norwegian, and it's a very ethnic thing mm-hmm. among Scandinavians, just like, you know, Italians are Catholic. And in many ways, I think that Lutheran churches depend on that ethnicity to keep people, so that when I was a teenager, uh, I was just in high school, and I started asking questions like, how do we know this is true? You know, I was attending a uh, public high school, and all my textbooks are secular, all my teachers are secular, and I just wanted to know, how can we be sure Christianity is true? Just that one question. But unfortunately, no one in my uh, life was able to give me any answers. Um, a Christian college professor, I, I asked, you know, why are you a Christian? And he said, works for me. Oh. <laughs> I said, really? That's it? <laughs> oh, man. I had a chance to talk to a Lutheran, by, by the way, these were both Lutheran, okay. <laughs> uh, a Lutheran seminary dean. And all he said was, don't worry, we all have doubts sometimes. As hmm. though it were a psychological phase that I was going through. Hmm. So I decided, well, maybe Christianity didn't really have any answers. And I thought, you can't really say you believe something unless you have good reasons for it, whether it's Christianity or anything else. So I very intentionally walked away from my Christian faith about halfway through high school. Mm. But because I had been a Christian, I knew what I was missing, if you know what I mean. Mm. I, I realized very quickly that if there is no God, then there's no basis for meaning in life, then there's no basis for ethics. And we're just all in the dark saying, you know, what's, what's right for me, what's wrong for you? I realized quickly that there was no... Uh, purpose to life. There was not even a foundation for truth. Here I was a high schooler, and I'm thinking, if all I have is my puny little brain and the vast scope of time and space and history, what makes me think I can even know any kind of objective truth? Ridiculous. I, I thought, of course, that's ridiculous. 
So I, be, I rather rapidly became a postmodern relativistic skeptic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was an agnostic for many years. And then I happened to come across the ministry of Francis Schaeffer. Mm-hmm. I was um, in Europe because we, we had lived there when I was a kid. And I went back to school. I wanted to go back to school in Germany. And I came across Labrie. The name of Francis Schaeffer's ministry was Labrie, which was in Switzerland. Yes. And... That was the first time I'd ever encountered Christians who answered my questions, you know, who who knew what the secular philosophies were, who knew what the objections were, and were able to answer my questions. So I was blown away. I was utterly blown away by this place and by these Christians. As you probably know, Schaefer was also known for uh, his endorsement of the arts and helping Christians to become more aware of the aesthetic world. And I was I was studying violin at the conservatory in Heidelberg, Germany. So this was also a big deal. You know, a Christian who actually cared about the arts. Mm-hmm. All that to say, you know, it took a year and a half. It it still took a year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> but I did become a Christian then um, because of Labrie and because mm-hmm. of discovering apologetics. And that's why the whole, all of my books, all of my ministry has been apologetics. I have such a heart to helping young people who are asking the questions that I was asking. I just finished uh, Tim Keller's new book. Well, I, I haven't finished it yet. I'm into it pretty deep, but he just has a, a whole section on Labrie Fellowship. And uh, yeah, it's it's pretty cool. He, it just came out uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think. But yeah, that's part of what he talks about is not only the answers to apologetic questions, but also the lifestyle and it being lived out in real time. So can you speak to that just a little bit as to how you saw the Schaefers like really living it out in and modeling the Christian life as well? Oh, I'm glad you asked that because virtually everyone I know who went to Labrie, including myself, would say that answering the intellectual questions was, was important because you, uh, as Schaefer himself said, you have to respect the life of the mind. God created us with minds. His favorite phrase was, we have to give honest answers to honest questions. And I really appreciated that because I had not encountered that anywhere in the Christian world before. Mm. But he also understood, he and his wife Edith, that living it out was at least equal in terms of you know, the impact of your ministry. We saw, we meaning we, we students had a chance to be there, <laughs> um, we saw a form of love and community that we had not ever seen before in the mm. Christian world. And that was equally important because you know, if this is true, it needs to be true in the real world. Yes. And I have to say that, you know, I've been around a lot of Christian leaders and ministries since then. And I would still say that Schaefer was the most authentic person I've known in terms of, you know, Christian leaders and so on. He was very, very authentic. His relationships with people were real. And I agree with you. That's a huge part of what makes Christianity uh plausible to somebody who's considering the claims of Christianity is when you see it lived out and it's making a difference in who these people are, the quality of the love and relationship that they have. And that really is the key, I think, for us. If if we are going to proclaim the name of Christ, we better be proclaiming the walk of Christ as well, because that is so crucial to people really grabbing a hold of the, the faith and understanding what God has for us to do and have impact on our lives every day. In fact, one of uh, your early books uh, you wrote with Charles Colson, How Now Shall We Live? It's my favorite book of all time that I have read. 
that impacted me so much as I read that book. And then as I read this book, and you make reference to your puny little brain, uh, let me tell you, nobody with a puny little brain writes a book like How Now Shall We Live or Love Thy Body. Why did you write Love Thy Body? First of all, of course, because these are front burner issues today Mm -hmm. and Christians really do need to understand them. And I hear from people all the time who say that their pastors are not quite up on these issues yet and are not providing the leadership. But it was also that the concept of truth that I learned at Labrie has uh, since then influenced all of my writing. So, for for example, here's, here's what I mean by that. One of Schaefer's most important messages was that you cannot preach that Christianity is true unless you understand that the concept of truth has shifted so that people are not hearing what you say. Yes. Every civilization has pretty much thought that there was a natural order and a moral order, and that the two were integrated into a single cosmic system. And so truth would also be integrated and holistic and would be a single system of truth. But in the modern age, starting with the modern with the scientific revolution, people began to say, no, 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 no. There's only really one form of truth that is reliable, and that's what we know by science. We know what we know by empirical investigation. What can be tested in the laboratory? And what does that mean for other types of truth claims, like religious and moral and theological truths? Well, many people decided they're just not truths. They don't qualify as true. So they're just your private personal opinion based on your subjective experience. And for many people, then, when they hear the claims of Christianity, they think, oh, well, you're just giving me your private personal subjective opinion. What helps you get through the night? And Schaefer said, this is the main reason Christians are not getting through to people today. So that's what um, informed so many of my books then is that, if your concept of truth is divided like that, Schaefer used the imagery, and he's not the only one. A lot of philosophers have used the uh, metaphor of two stories in a building, so that the lower story is what we know as science, and that's considered objective and true. And the upper story is where we then put things like theology and morality, which are not considered truths any longer, but just subjective personal preferences. Well, it turns out that if that's your view of truth, it's going to affect every single field. And so as I picked up these uh, moral issues, what I discovered is it's affected even the view of the human person. So, for example, if you read secular bioethicists on the question of abortion, say, you know, Christians are still arguing that, that the fetus is human. Well, every secular bioethicist out there agrees that the fetus is human from conception. They all know that. The, inf- the, the data... Well, genetics and DNA is just too strong to deny it. So how do they get around that then and support abortion? What they say is the fetus is human, biologically human, scientifically human at the beginning. And then at some later stage, it becomes a person. Mm-hmm. And personhood talks about how we value the, the fetus and what moral status it has, it has and whether it warrants legal protection. And so that's an to use the upper lower story imagery, in the lower story, what we know by science, the fetus is human. But then at some point, it jumps into the upper story and becomes a person with moral status that we should be protecting. But it's an upper story concept, meaning it is subjective and private, and every bioethicist draws the line at a different place because it's a subjective, arbitrary concept. 
Exactly. Yeah. Have you seen Hamilton yet, by the way? <laughs> no, I haven't. Okay. So like the whole thing, I love Hamilton. It's amazing. I, I sing it all the time and it's really awkward for my family. But uh, in the whole deal with Hamilton is that he overcame all his obstacles through his intellect, meaning the whole value system of Hamilton is this guy pursued education and he was really, really smart and that gave him his worth and his value. Mm. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that because in, in Love Thy Body, you deal with that as far as what does personhood have to do with people with disabilities, people who do not you know, have cognitive abilities like the, you know, the majority of people or whatever. I, if you could speak to that a little bit more, I think that's a, a very important uh, subject for today because uh, we're even seeing it in pop culture like with Hamilton and other things. Yeah, that's a very good question, because when we talk about this sort of two-story split, um, how do you define that upper story then? How do you define personhood? And generally, it is defined in some way in terms of cognitive abilities, in terms of self-awareness and uh, ability to predict the future. And I mean, bioethicists throw all kinds of different things in there. But you are right. It also works in reverse, which is what happens if you lose a certain cognitive function. Yes. Then, you know, uh, so arguments for euthanasia and assisted suicide usually rest on the notion that you can lose personhood or in some cases never gain it. But the point is, if you do not have these higher level cognitive skills, then you are no longer a person. In fact, as one bioethicist that I quote in Love Thy Body put, puts it, you are only a body. Mm-hmm. And when you are only a body, then you lose personhood and you lose the right to life. People don't realize that the, the human right. rights, basically, well, let's stick with euthanasia. Everyone knows that even if you've lost some cognitive functioning, you're still human. Mm-hmm. Right? So yep. once again, it's a human versus person. personhood. Right. And... And what's ironic then about that is that being human is no longer enough for human rights. Yes. It's such a challenge as we see what's happening in society and see the arguments that you have talked about the world making. In fact, one of the big arguments that you hear right now is that Christians are anti-science or don't believe in science, which obviously, as you're talking about those those two levels, they're saying the, the accusation is that Christians don't believe in the basis, the bottom level, and there's just no way to move people from that bottom level to the top level if they think that you're not even at the bottom level. Well, yeah. In fact, it's actually reversed now. You see, when we get into these moral subjects like abortion, euthanasia, homosexuality, transgenderism, what you find is that the upper level, in secular thinking, the upper level has taken over. That's what postmodernism is, mm-hmm. basically. You know, if you if the, the term postmodernism sounds a little esoteric and you're not sure what it means, <laughs> just think, oh, these are people who live in the upper story. They don't, they're the ones who are now not believing in science. And think the abortion and the euthanasia examples we just listed. Mm-hmm. They acknowledge that scientifically the fetus is human, but they say that doesn't matter. So what's happening is that Christians are the ones now who are saying science does matter. Right? <laughs> Wait a minute. Science does matter. If you can know, know scientifically that the fetus is human, that should inform your moral views. So how this takes us then to the next level is talking about transgenderism and those types of things. Again, looking at the biology as opposed to looking at the second story. Exactly. 
transgenderism is the most obvious example because transgender activists themselves argue that your biological sex has nothing to do with your gender, mm. your gender identity. Well, they're teaching it down to kindergarten now that yes. if you if you have boy parts or girl parts, that that doesn't tell you that you're a boy or a girl. I was just doing a Q&A in New York State Saturday and someone asked me and they said teachers in New York State in kindergarten are saying that the terms mom and dad are irrelevant. Right, because they are, it's, it's the sexual binary, you know, mother and father uh, suggest a sexual binary. And, well, transgender activists will actually say today the term biological sex is a hate term. Mm. You know, to, to insist on even talking about biological sex, no, oh, they, they will say is a hate term. So here's the irony. You know, again, it's Christians who are saying, no, 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 wait a minute. God created your biology. God created a physical, material world. And material facts mean something. See, what we have to do is back up and say, why is it that material facts don't, are not taken to mean something by postmodern people today who are into gender theory and so on? The gender ideologues. It goes back to Darwinism and evolution. Before that, people thought the universe was created by a loving God, who had a purpose, uh, to use a technical term, that was a teleological view of the universe. Teleology just means it has a purpose, a reason for existing. And if a loving, intentional God created it, then it has a reason for being. And it was Darwin who first said, no, 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 um, we can account for living things by blind, material, uh, purposeless, mindless forces. And the implication of that then was your your body is part of nature, and therefore your body has no intrinsic purpose that you are morally obligated to respect. I'll give you an example. In fact, uh, Camille Paglia is a fairly well-known public intellectual. Uh, you guys are nodding. You, you've, a lot of Christians know her, um, although she's a, you know, a radical lesbian feminist. But she does disagree with the feminists on some points, on the, on the postmodern points. Namely, she says sex is not just a social construction. You know, humans are a sexually reproducing species. Nature made us male and female. But then you say to her, well, how do you justify being a lesbian then? And she says, well, uh, why not defy nature? And that's her exact words. Why not defy nature? And let me give you a longer quote. She says, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. So she is giving you the Darwinist view. Basically, the body has no, you know, it's a product of mindless, purposeless forces. Therefore, it has no purpose. We can defy nature and treat it as a amoral biochemical machine that we can do with what we want. So you see the connection there is because Darwin and evolution is in the lower story of science that the postmodern view now reigns in the upper story. And we can do with nature, including our bodies, whatever we want. I think what you're bringing up here really is inconsistency, right? And we as Christians, we struggle with that just as much as anybody. We have a lot of inconsistent issues as far as our walk, not matching our talk. But really, I think a lot of the inconsistency with this, you're even bringing up Darwin as a great example. 
I mean, the subtitle of his book is incredibly racist. <laughs> and it's crazy to, to, for me to see how, especially when you talk about the leftist movement, right, is so passionate about fighting racism. And yet so much of the ideology and all this stuff comes from someone like Darwin, who even in the subtitle of his primary resource, I mean, it was racist through and through. So, I mean, it, there's inconsistencies all around, right? Well, uh, but it's a different kind of inconsistency. If you and I fail to live up to our convictions as Christians, it's because of our failure. It's more hypocrisy. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And sinful flesh. I mean, we are sinners and we don't always live out our convictions. The secular mindset, as Schaefer himself you know, pointed out um, through his long ministry, it's built into the system. So mm -hmm. that's why people call it a two-story dualism, because it's not just that it's inconsistent, it's that it's logically contradictory. Ah. If the human body, or if nature itself, is just a complex biochemical machine operating by blind material forces, then freedom is impossible. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, you know, a robot doesn't have freedom. A robot can't love. You know, a robot can't even think logically. You know, it has to be programmed <laughs> to think. And so all of these human qualities like freedom, you know, the moral will, the ability to love, the ability to think reasonably, you know, using the reason that God gave us, that's um, a contradiction. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it, it's an actual logical contradiction. So that's much deeper than mm -hmm. just not being able to live out your own convictions adequately. And, and taking that logical thing to a conclusion, I deal with a lot of teens. If you're talking about self-harm, if you're talking about any of those things, it would logically mean that you shouldn't even have to tell them that that's wrong. If that brings them a pleasure, if that brings them an awareness of their body, it should be totally fine. But yet, even the psychological community now is going to say, no, 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 that, that's still the inconsistency just is glaring when the rubber meets the road. But, and especially with transgenderism, because puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, uh, unnecessarily cutting off healthy body parts, none of this is good for you. Mm -hmm. you yeah. know, um, yeah. the, the more we know about puberty blockers alone, the more oh. we realize that there are harmful health impacts of puberty blockers. Um, Cross-sex hormones, same thing. There was an article just I, that I just put on Twitter a few days ago <laughs> on um, how uh, puberty blockers are prematurely aging these young people. Mm. That their their bone density, for example, is very brittle. They have the bone density of an eighty-year-old person. This is not healthy. And the cool thing is that today Christians can make allies with non-Christians who are seeing this. To me, it's interesting to watch. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. I'm in a group that consists of morally conservative Christian women and very liberal, leftist, lesbian, socialist feminists. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a great, it's been a wonderful experience for us to work together on the trans issue because mm. they, they are very concerned that science is being denied that the biological sex is being denied. Here's their argument. You cannot protect women's rights if you cannot define what you mean by woman. And if anyone can be a woman, regardless of what biology they have, regardless of what body parts they have, they can say, I'm a woman. The term has no meaning. Mm. And so feminists are very aware that 
this is a huge attack on women's rights that we and so, so that's why Christians Christians are sort of connecting mm. with very with very liberal atheists strange <laughs> <the> bedfellows <laughs> <laughs> but it's, you know we should we should reach out to allies whenever we can so yeah. this, I, I think this is wonderful now you're yeah. out there on Twitter you're obviously you've, the book is out there it's on Amazon and available what kind of feedback or maybe I should say pushback are you getting both from the secular culture this cancel culture that we seem to be in right now and the church yeah, well, so far, um, you know, keep praying. Um, <laughs> you know, Amazon recently did drop uh, Ryan Anderson's book. Yes. And when people challenged them on it, they said, oh, we're going to get rid of any book that has his perspective. So I'm going on every day and saying, is, it st- is my book, <laughs> is my book, Lovely Body, still there? Get it while you can. <laughs> I think they're still selling Mein Kampf, though. I, I think that's yes. a little weird. <laughs> well, you talk about uh, the inconsistencies. Yeah, Amazon selling all kinds of hate books of other types. Mein Kampf, which is Hitler's manifesto. Mm -hmm. But I want to be encouraging because um, there's a whole host of secular people who consider themselves enlightenment figures, many of them biologists, interestingly enough, who have been coming out on the trans issue and on postmodernism in general. And all of a sudden, we're connecting with them, too. If you want to place where some of these people are located, it's a website called New Discourses. Oh, and Quillet, the magazine Quillet. Mm-hmm. These have become sites where secular, very secular people who have, in fact, sometimes written very hostile books against Christianity in the past are now coming together and saying, oh, well, wait a minute. Christians and secular, some of them are evolutionary biologists mm-hmm. who are being canceled from secular formats. They're starting to come together with Christians and say, well, you know, we believe in, we still believe in objective truth. Right. <laughs> and Christians and, and, and highly secular people are coming together. And that's why I said they're more enlightenment figures, because they still believe in objective truth. Right. They're not postmodern. They're starting to recognize that postmodernism is spreading so rapidly across the college campus, especially. And that's what's behind cancel culture. You know, the, the idea that we can't even listen to you if, if we disagree with you. I, I would suggest for Christians is find allies. It's a great strategy to find allies and to say, hey, on the question of truth, we actually agree. <laughs> is it this. getting easier and easier to find allies? Uh, for instance, uh, President Biden just had a recent executive order for transgender athletes. And the way this Equality Act could reshape America, there are those that are outside of Christendom that are looking at it and going, this is a world I'm not sure I want. Yes, the question of women, female athletics has become a really good uh, connecting point because an awful lot of non-Christians see the problem here. And because they can't get their word out through normal means, they've started using unusual methods like billboards. Mm. <laughs> Have you seen that? There was a yes. billboard. <laughs> yes, I've seen those. Yeah. So there were there were some billboards promoting Abigail Schreer's book, for example. Um, she has she's written a very good book, Abigail Schreer. Her book is called Irreducible Damage, mm-hmm. and it, she's a journalist, so she's a good writer. So she's not laying out a philosophical case or a moral case, really. Um, she's just laying out a health case for primarily about about why it's uh, harmful to push the transgender agenda, the transgender ideology on young children. Parents got together in uh, Los Angeles 
and put up a billboard saying, here's the book that you're not allowed to read. Wow. <laughs> Go out and get it and read it. Wow. In Los <laughs> and in, Angeles. In Los Angeles. And the city, took it, the city took it down and they bought a new one and put it up again. And there's another one. Oh, again, on, I, I put this on Twitter. I think it was New Hampshire. It was, it was up where you guys are. Wow. <laughs> there was a billboard. Of the beast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it showed um, it showed women it showed women athletes racing, running, and then they showed a male athlete at the front. The billboard just said, "Is this fair? Is this fair?" Mm. That has become incredibly popular. I got thousands of of retweets and likes when mm-hmm. I put it on Twitter. All I did was just put the billboard up. So people have been getting creative in finding ways to get around the gatekeepers and connect with uh, a wide range of people who are concerned. Uh, I think that trans athletes is probably the one that has the most agreement across the culture. Mm. We're entering a time where pastors are going to wind up dealing with things that, first of all, they never thought they would have to deal with. Also, things that they can't afford to ignore, can they? That's a good point. Hey, I can't ignore them teaching at a Christian college. You know, I'm getting I'm getting kids who are wrestling with same-sex attraction. Um, I'm getting students um, in my graduate classes where they're a little older, their children are trans, are coming out and claiming a trans identity, or sometimes their grandchildren. Almost everyone now in my classrooms at a Christian college has some personal connection. Yes. In terms of relationships um, in their family or, or in their church or their kids, their kids' friends. And so, yes, you can't you cannot ignore it. And there is somewhat of a difference, of course, between um, cultural activism and pastoral and a pastoral approach. I'll give you I'll give you an example. Um, so my book, Love Thy Body, is full of examples. And one of the things I have found most important is just to help Christians change their language. Um, so often we come across as negative and critical and judgmental on these issues. Mm-hmm. And I, I have several I have several examples in Love Thy Body where a person changed not because a Christian managed to make them feel shame and guilt, but because they came to respect their body. Yes. This, this, this language of I'll give you two quick examples um, from homosexuality. So uh, Sean Doherty, I have a longish story on him. He was interesting because he identified as homosexual from the, exclusively homosexually. From the time he was quite young, and he grew up in a "quote unquote" gay affirming family, and attended a gay affirming church, so there was no sense of guilt or shame connected to being homosexual. But today he's married to a woman. You have to say that now. Mm-hmm. Married to a woman and has three children. So what was the turning point for him? He said, "I didn't try to change my feelings directly because that rarely works, but I stopped." basing my identity on my sexual feelings. Mm, And instead, I came to accept what I already had, which was a male body, as a good gift from God. And eventually, my feelings started to follow suit. Mm. And so this is the core of the debate, really, is, is nature, including our bodies, the product of mindless, purposeless forces? Or is it the product of a loving creator, and therefore, 
it is intrinsically good. We can acknowledge it, like he said, as a good gift from God. And so that positive language, a shorter anecdote with a woman who lived as a lesbian for many years and is now married and has married to a man and has two children. And she said, the turning point came when I decided, I decided to accept that God had made me female for a reason. And I wanted to honor my body by living in accord with the creator's design. Mm -hmm. so that is the language I try to communicate. Honor your body, respect your biological sex, treat your physical self as a good gift from God. And yes. this is the language that we need to use in a pastoral setting. My friend Jim Childs lived in the gay lifestyle for 30 years. And one of the things I love that he says, he travels the country doing trainings for churches and we've had him on the podcast. It's, it's amazing. But he says, my greatest need was not to become straight. My greatest need was to find my identity in Christ. And that's the greatest need that we all have is to find our identity in Christ. And uh, anyway, he does a phenomenal job, but I love that messaging that he does is when it comes to identity, like you mentioned there, that's really the greatest need is to find our identity in Christ. In Christ, but also what I'm finding is accepting your body as a good gift from God, mm -hmm. because that's what both homosexuality and transgenderism are, are a rejection of the body. Even secular people are starting to say transgenderism represents, quote, body hatred. There's an interview with a young woman who uh, was transgender. She came out as a trans boy when she was 11. And then when she was 14, she reclaimed her identity as a girl. And she said, the turning point came, direct quote, okay, direct quote, when I realized it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. Mm. And this came out shortly after my book had already been published, but it would have been a great quote for a book so titled good. Yeah. Love Thy, Thy body. body. So good. Yeah. Wow. You know, as we've looked at and listened to you talk, Professor Piercy, and then also seen what's going on in the world around us, we, we've heard you talk about books that are being taken down off Amazon. How can we pray for you and what you're doing in your ministry? Well, thank you for asking. And can I answer that partly with another story? Sure. <laughs> um, because the transgender issue is the one that's on the front burner now. Right. More than anything. And, oh, by the way, we haven't even talked about the Equality Act. Oh, that's right. We did mention that. I think, I think let's do that. Make sure you address that in whatever you're going to say, because it's important. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and who knows? It may have passed by the time this airs. So we, need, we really need to be on top of that. Mm. And pastors need to be giving leadership to their congregations on what does this mean. But the Equality Act will make it illegal to counsel young people who are having gender questions and gender confusion. It will make it illegal to counsel them in any way except to immediately affirm. Without any religious exception. Exactly, because there, there's something called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act which has been used to protect churches and Christian schools and Christian universities and Christian ministries. And the Equality Act explicitly says you cannot use the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. I think that's what many people don't understand. They don't realize that there is no religious exception. Pastors are not exempt. Churches aren't exempt. Christian schools aren't exempt. Christian radio stations aren't exempt. <laughs> and even in Australia, I read an article of a pastor talking about prayer. 
right? Like even if someone asked for prayer about it and offering to pray, that was actually ruled as something that was illegal because it was a form of conversion therapy, just even praying that someone and articulating that you are intentionally praying that they will change, that that was taken as that. So let me give a, an anecdote from my book, Love Thy Body. In the chapter on transgenderism, I do tell the story of a young boy who had gender dysphoria from a very young age. True gender dysphoria, by the way, does usually start when they're quite young. So this is, I, I called him Brandon. He wasn't even walking yet when his babysitter said, there's something a little different about this, about this kid. The babysitter said to his mother, he's too good to be a boy. That was her way of saying he's gentle and compliant and quiet and the things that we just don't expect, uh, that we stereotypically associate more with girls. By uh, in, in preschool, when his mother picked him up, every day he was playing with the little girls and not the little boys. By elementary school, he was coming to his parents weeping, frequently weeping and saying, I think the way girls do, I'm interested in the things girls are. God should have made me a girl. By age 14, he was scouring the internet for information on sex change surgery. So what did his parents do? First of all, they made it very clear to him that they loved him just the way he was. That it was perfectly okay to be a gentle, compliant, emotional boy. Yes. Uh, it did not mean he was really a girl. Yes. And they took him through the gifts of the spirit, for example, which are not divided by sex. Mm-hmm. You know, teaching and prophecy are not masculine, as we might tend to think. Mercy and service are not feminine. You know, his parents used to tell him, you know, it's possible that God is, is preparing you for one of the caring professions, like a counselor, therapist, or a um, healthcare worker. By the way, they even took him through the Myers-Briggs personality types oh, wow. <laughs> to show Dang. him that men and women are both ends of the spectrum. Absolutely. Yeah. Personality. It's okay for a woman also to be gender nonconforming in the sense of being assertive and maybe more intellectual and more rational. In fact, Brandon's parents, one of their favorite line was this. You know, they wanted him to know there's nothing wrong with him. And they said, it's not you that's wrong. It's the stereotypes that are wrong. Right. That's good. And it did take it did take a long time. It was not. It, I just I want you to know these are very intractable problems. I mean, gen, true gender dysphoria is very difficult. His, it, his parents went through hell. I have to just say, but uh, by the time he was at least in the early twenties, last time I talked to him, he was in his early twenties, and he had accepted his you know gender identity as a boy. Mm. And here's what he said was the turning point. He said, "I came to I came to realize surgery was not going to give me what I wanted." <laughs> You know, uh, I was not going to make me a girl. And I don't know if you've seen this, a, a, a very famous TED Talk. The subtitle is, Every Cell Has a Sex. Mm. And, we can put that in the show notes. Yeah, we absolutely. can look it up and put it in the show notes. Uh, Paula Johnson, I think the actual title is his slash hers healthcare. Okay. She, she's, a, she's a cardiologist. So her concern is that medical symptoms are different between men and women. Sure. But most of the testing is done on men. So what happens is that most doctors are not trained in seeing the symptoms that women have. And so they were not seeing the symptoms they had been trained to see. They were sending women home and the women were having heart attacks. So that's the gist of the TED Talk. 
every cell has a sex, including your heart cells. Mm. You know, um, so there's no way a person can actually become the opposite sex because you mm. cannot change every cell of the body. Right. Yep. And the, the interesting thing is, if you go to this TED Talk, you, you they're probably still there. There are all these comments in the comment section saying, "I'm sure very interesting." Well, they said she's so transphobic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I mean, wait a minute, she didn't even mention the trans issue. And finally, I, I kept reading. The, I kept reading the comments. Finally, one wise person said, "Look, guys, she's not transphobic. She's just saying that when you get sick and the doctors put you on the operating table, they need to know your original biological sex to give Very you the important. best mm-hmm. best health care." Right. Exactly. And so that's uh, so my 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 little Brandon. Um, that's what he came to realize. He could not change every cell in his body. Mm. He could not become a, a girl. Mm. And I think that's what we have to help people understand when they're wrestling with these issues. Is a biological male does claim I am actually a woman, and so we have to recover recover our sense of science and biology. And say it's not. We're not just talking about changing boy parts and, and girl parts. Every cell in your body has the DNA for either for either man or woman. Because, as you say in your book, matter matters. <laughs> and I love that. That that's so helpful. Because I, I love how you talk about how Christianity has the highest view of the body, but what we're experiencing in our culture and society is really the lowest view of the body. And mm. we need to get that messaging out because it, it's true. Matter matters. And it's very important. And, and it's so contrary to what people think. You know, people think, oh, Christianity, you know, Christians, are, you know, they're, they ha- they're otherworldly. They don't think this world matters. They think the only thing that matters is getting to heaven when you die. And what they're overlooking is Christians have faced this from the beginning. The early church faced philosophies that denigrated the material world mm-hmm. and the body. Mm-hmm. You know, philosophies like Gnosticism. Mm-hmm. And Platonism and Manichaeism. Remember, Augustine was a Manichae for a while. Mm-hmm. And all of these isms denigrated the physical world as the realm of death, decay, and destruction and defined salvation as escape from the physical world. In fact, in Gnosticism, uh, this world is created by a low-level deity, the lowest-level deity, who's actually an evil god. Mm-hmm. Because no self-respecting God would get his hands dirty mucking about with matter. (laughs) You've addressed a lot of this in the book, Love Thy Body, and I highly recommend it. Uh, Dan's read it. I've read it. It's, It's just such an important thing for leaders especially to understand because this is something that is not going away anytime soon. Yeah, exactly. And again, our best resource is just our own theological history because well to go back to the early church it was stunningly countercultural. Mm. it was revolutionary when christians said no 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 matter is good because it was created by a good god creation was not by a low level evil god mm. creation was by the supreme god who was good right. and therefore his creation is good and that, uh, that's not totally turned around by the fall. Yes, the fall is real, but it's kind of like seeing a great artistic masterpiece that's been defaced. You can still see the beauty of the original mm. shining through, right. and that's what we have to ha- communicate to people. Uh, and by the way, since we started with Sha- Francis Schaeffer, that was one of the best themes of his of his writings and his apologetics was this creation is still good. You know, God's creation is 
good. Humans have value and dignity. I hear from my, my students all the time saying they grew up in churches where they were taught, you're worthless, mm. you're nothing. Mm. And, and they, they come into my classes and I say, no, you have great value and dignity because you're made in the image of God. Yeah. And they say, I didn't get that message growing up in the right, church. Right. How can we pray for you? Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I appreciate that very much. I think just um, courage to stay with these issues. I was on the television show with Jenna Ellis, who's a lawyer. She's a former student of mine, actually. <laughs> That's how I know her. Uh, she she says uh, she, she got her understanding of Christian worldview, you know, from from me, because, mm. uh, you know, that I sat down with her and explained and having been to Labrie, you know, what is Christian worldview? And she's, but she's targeted um, because she was on the Trump legal team. And so there are people coming out trying to discredit anyone who takes a stand on these issues, regardless, is being targeted. And today, you know what targeting means it means they're trying to make sure you lose your job and you never right. get another one. This is not just. It's more than a surface-level disagreement. This is doxing. Yeah. This is cancellation. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is scorched-earth policy. It's brutal. Exactly. And the very fact that I was on her television show means that, um, that I'm on their list now. <laughs> yes, I'm on the list. I mean, I may have been already, just, just for my book, uh, Love Thy Body, but now for sure I am. So, like you say, it's brutal. In this brutal climate, I think Christians Christians need to be praying for one another for the courage to stand up and the wisdom to to um, speak on these issues in a way that is winsome. Um, because even the things we've talked about, I have heard Christians come out on the, well, you guys are just rejecting science, mm. you know, and you you guys are irrational. You guys, I thought, wait a minute, that's not how you... That's not how you approach them. Right. You approach them by saying, hey, I care about you. And I care, you know, my message is affirming you and helping you to recognize the value and dignity of your own body. You have adopted a, an ideology that is harming yourself. Mm. You know, yeah. it's, it's den by denigrating and devaluing yeah. your body. Yeah. Uh, you, the, the story of the young woman, who, who the teenager, actually, um, who's, who had lived as a trans boy for three years and then said, I learned to love my body. Our message should be, yeah, why, why would you accept such an extreme devaluation of the body? body. Mm. Right, right. So that, that, our message should, de, should be positive and helping people to see the value of their body as opposed to a harsh negative message. One of my favorite quotes I heard recently is truth without love is mean, but love without truth is meaningless. Mm. And it isn't unloving to share the truth with people because we care and we want them to recognize who they really are and who God really is. And they're much more powerful weapons than we realize or that the world even recognizes. Jim Daly recently, uh, he's the president of Focus on the Family, recently had a meal with Alan Dershowitz and they were talking and Alan Dershowitz said to him, he said, you realize that uh, your enemy is coming at you with, with the knives out, switchblades. He said, this is, this is a street fight. He said, what kind of weapons do you have? And Jim Daly said, love, joy, peace. And he said, Alan Dershowitz pushed back from the table and he said, your weapons stink. 
and and this is the thing though because the world sees it that way and unfortunately sometimes so does the church mm. we feel like we've got to get in the gutter with them and we don't have to and I think that is a lot of what you say here in your book, Professor Piercy. Look, yes. we have given a master level class here, and <laughs> I just so appreciate you taking the time to talk to us here on Dense in the Darkness, because it is so critical that we as leaders understand the battle that we're in and fight, realizing that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but we can use what God has given us, our brains, to to put forth that message that is harmless as doves, but wise as serpents, as the scripture mm. says. So thank you so much, Professor Piercy. We really appreciate your time with us today. And uh, I encourage you, pray for her. She is going to be under a lot of attack in the coming days, months, and years. A lot of resources available to you in the show notes from this podcast. And of course, you can always find the information on the web as well as our website for the Northeast Collaborative. Thank you again for being with us on this marvelous episode of Dense in the Darkness as we continue to lead and launch healthy churches in the Northeast.